Uh, I bring a greetings from Emmanuel Church in Nashville. If you're ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, we would be overjoyed to have you come join us for worship. And I thank your pastor and your leaders and all of you for the privilege of bringing the gospel to you today. And he suggested the topic of marriage. So here we go. Uh, marriage and the gospel. The Christian gospel is not Jesus yelling at you, saying, do better, try harder, pedal faster. The Christian gospel is Jesus saying to us all, I loved you, but I lost you, and I want you back. And through my cross, I have opened the way freely. I like the way Martin Luther, in his typically blunt way, stated it. He said, faith unites the soul with Christ. What he means by the soul is what we would call the person. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. From such a marriage, Christ and the soul become one so that they hold all things in common for better or worse. This means that what Christ possesses belongs to the believing soul, and what the soul possesses belongs to Christ. Thus, Christ possesses all good things and holiness. These now belong to the soul. The soul possesses lots of vices and sin. These now belong to Christ crucified. Is this not a happy business? Christ, the rich, noble, and holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute, takes away all her evil, and bestows all his goodness upon her. It is no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her. We want to spend our time together taking two steps in our thinking. Step one, how the Bible defines marriage. Maybe you've heard it said, as I have, the Bible includes so many different marital arrangements along the way. For crying out loud, Solomon had 700 wives. So the Bible isn't clear about what marriage really is. But the Bible is clear. We can see that clarity. And it's better than any human arrangement we would have figured out for ourselves. Step two, how the Bible dignifies marriage and sexuality. How the Bible dignifies marriage and sexuality. There is nothing in Christ, nothing he brings to us that we need to worry about or apologize for or filter out or brace ourselves against. If we had a, a Rembrandt original hanging in our home, we wouldn't apologize for it. The Bible dignifies marriage and sexuality as a masterpiece of glorious artistry created by God himself. Now, we're not good at living it out, but the glory that God created is still there. So, number one, 
How does the Bible define marriage? The key text is in Genesis chapter 2. Now, if we were reading the Bible for the very first time, we've never read it before, and we read, we turn to chapter 1, page 1, and we read about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and everything in Genesis chapter 1 is amazing and cosmic and massive and sparkling and, and impressive and overwhelming in the most wonderful way. So we turn the page to read Genesis chapter 2, and we're thinking, for crying out loud, what will the sequel be? Where is this going? And in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible funnels down to a little garden, and in that garden, there's a young man, and there's a young woman, and they're falling in love, and they're getting married. We might think, whoa, 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 what's happening here? Why? We might feel, okay, this is lovely, but it's kind of out of its depth. We might wonder that. The Bible raises that question but doesn't answer that question until we finally get to the end of the story. So we're in Genesis chapter 2, and there is a reason why the biblical story starts out so early with the theme of marriage. The whole Bible is a love story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth as the home for the first couple, Adam and Eve. And in the end, Revelation 21 and 22, God will create the new heavens and the new earth as the eternal home of the ultimate couple, Christ and his bride. Marriage is not a topic that a few passages hit along the way, though some do focus on marriage. But marriage is the wraparound category for the entire Bible. The gospel is a story of love from above, given, love received, love betrayed and rejected and crucified, love resurrected and exalted and moving in the world today out to win us, love that comes across the tracks to the wrong side of town to find that girl that no one else wants. But Jesus chooses her and dignifies her forever. And she is us, all of us. The love of Christ restores the innocence we've all thrown away. He makes us clean again, new again, and safe again forever. The Bible tells that story. So, here's the point. If marriage is really the primary category for understanding the Bible with an authentic reading, as it is, then if we cave on the Bible's view of marriage, we will not lose just a few passages here and there. We will lose the entire message. If Jesus is our true and better husband, then to compromise on what is so precious to him is to insult him where his heart is the most tender to us. So we have strong reasons to revere the biblical vision of marriage. 
So I want to read from Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. If you have a Bible, you can follow with me as I read. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Isn't that striking? Here we are. It's, we're in the Garden of Eden, for crying out loud. And... Sin has not entered the world. This is perfect. And God sees and puts his finger on a problem. Something is not good in the Garden of Eden. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last, you feel the relief in his voice. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage did not rise up from human social evolution. Marriage came down through divine revelation. Wedding ceremonies are culturally conditioned, but marriage itself was divinely created. Verse 24 is the key. So when anyone asks you if the Bible actually defines marriage, verse 24 in Genesis chapter 2, it's your go-to verse. So here's how we can think of Genesis chapter 2. Moses wrote this, and let's think of it this way. We're sitting in his living room in his home, and we're watching his account of the beginning of all things, on a DVD or whatever the latest technology is. I don't keep up with it. Um, So we're watching this, and we're we're watching the creation. We're watching God form Adam and and so forth. And and he names the animals, and, and, and then we see this puzzled look come over Adam's face. This strange feeling enters his heart. And God says to Adam... Son, I understand what you're feeling. That feeling is called loneliness. Don't worry about it. I've got this. Just lie down. Go to sleep. And Adam falls into a deep sleep. God takes flesh from his very body, and like Jesus multiplying the loaves of bread and and the fish, God takes that flesh, closes up, heals the wound, 
and builds this absolutely gorgeous lady, the very first woman, as Adam's equal and completion. Equal in the image of God. So there she stands. She is adorned with the glory of God. And God says to her, Honey, what I want you to do is just step over here. Yeah, don't worry about a thing. I've got this. I'll, be, I'll come get you in just a minute. <laughs> so she, she walks away. God bends down, touches Adam. He says, now, wake up, son. I have one more creation, my best one for you to name. And then, like the father of a bride, God brings Eve out to Adam it is love at first sight. Now, there were other accounts in the ancient world about the time of Moses, other accounts of the beginning of all things, the Babylonian creation account, for example. The Babylonian creation account doesn't even mention the distinct creation of the man and the woman. It just doesn't even matter. The Bible celebrates the creation of, of the man and of the woman as the final sort of climactic glory of creation. Why? Because God's love for us, as we'll ultimately see in the Bible, God's love for us is not cold, it's not emotionless. God's overflowing love for us is, it's the kind of experience, God's feeling, his heart for us is the kind of euphoric joy we experience in romantic love. Ultimate reality in our universe is not the laws of physics. That's sub-ultimate. Ultimate reality is the romantic love of Christ for his eternal bride, which is you. In verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. These are the very first recorded human words, and they are poetry. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. I identify with her. I feel immediate identification with her. Unlike the animals, they have their place, they're interesting, but she has my heart. And Adam is not speaking to Eve. He's not saying, you are bone of my bones. He's speaking to God about her. She is overhearing her husband praising God for her. And Adam seals their love, their romance, and their marriage with spiritual commitment through praise and worship to God. In 1944, my dad proposed to my mom with the scripture, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. What a great way to start. Yeah. And on my mom's grave in California today are these words on that gravestone, magnifying the Lord with Ray and exalting his name forever. What a great way to end. What a great story to live out. And maybe here among us today are couples 
who haven't yet sealed that commitment to Christ together. You need more in your romance than just you. Maybe you're discovering even the two of you together with your best intentions. It's not enough. Why not invite him in with his mighty heart for you? How can it not get better? Why not decide now, even if you've made some mistakes, and who hasn't, that this afternoon at home you kneel down together and you thank, husband, you thank God for that precious wife he gave you. And wife, you thank the Lord for that dear husband. And you both open your hearts to the Lord and invite him in. Guys, he makes every party better. John's Gospel, chapter 2, he made the best wine for that wedding reception. So maybe even if it's a bit late, send him an invitation. He'd love to come. Now, verse 24, as we come to verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and so forth. At this point in the DVD, Moses grabs the remote and he hits pause and the action on the screen freezes. He turns to us living in this broken world today. We're, we're not living in the Garden of Eden. That's obvious, right? So he turns to us who live in the world today and he points to what happened in the Garden of Eden and he says to us today, therefore, because of what happened in the Garden of Eden, that's the reason back then why a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh as a married couple. It all started in the Garden of Eden. And amazingly, when Adam and Eve betrayed our Lord and he kicked them, at, kicked them and us out of the Garden of Eden, God didn't take his gift of marriage back. He let us keep it. He let us keep his sacred gift. Your marriage is a remnant of the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is your personal Garden of Eden. Is it imperfect? Yes. Is it still amazing? Yes. How then does the Bible define marriage? We see it summarized in the last two words of verse 24. One flesh. One flesh. Each word counts. That's biblical shorthand for one mortal life fully shared. That's the biblical definition of marriage. One man, one woman in one mortal life fully shared. No barriers, no boundaries. Marriage is a man and a woman joined by vows, by sacred covenant, journeying together through the wilderness of this world, hand in hand, not as two separate persons with a convenient arrangement of their own devising, but the two now joined together as one. One purpose, one suffering, 
one joy, one bed, one budget, one reputation, one intimacy, eclipsing all others. Not even the children stand inside the circle of their parents' one flesh union. So on their wedding day, <laughs> two selfish me's start learning how to think like and live like and rejoice like one unified us. And neither one says to the other, well, this part of my life, I really like you, but this part of my life over here, this is roped off, this is cordoned off, you have no access here. Healthy friendships have boundaries. The whole point of marriage is no boundaries. Both come together, husband and wife, in complete, glad surrender as long as we both shall live. That's marriage according to the Bible. So marriage is more than friendship. In our world today, our world today sees all relationships on a continuum with enemies over here at one end and friends over here at the other end and everybody's somewhere on those graded uh, degrees along the way. And marriage is over at the friendship end, but way out there. It's just like an extreme form of friendship. And since same-sex friendship is good, same-sex marriage is also good. That's what we are told. And within its own framework, it makes sense. But that way of thinking is not the expansion of marriage. That is the redefinition of marriage. And it's a redefinition that we do not find anywhere in Scripture. The Bible doesn't see marriage anywhere along that continuum. The Bible puts marriage up at another level, one flesh with no boundaries. That's why sex is present in marriage only. Sexual intercourse seals, symbolizes, and refreshes the one flesh union as God designed it. So let's understand what's at stake in the definition of marriage, whatever definition you might adhere to. Today's redefinition of marriage comes out of a total worldview, a whole way of thinking, and brings with it a total worldview that is not dignified with the purpose and glory of God. The biblical definition of marriage comes out of a total worldview, a total framework, and brings with it a total worldview that is dignified with the purpose and glory of God. So, however you define marriage, it is not a narrow single issue. The Bible is saying something audacious about everything by saying something audacious about marriage. It is saying that the heart of God is being revealed to us as a love that gives without counting the cost in response to which we give him our all and we become one spirit with him. But if we establish our own made-up versions of marriage, if we legitimate other sexual expressions, then we are turning away not from tradition but from God. 
And then, while we're at it, why not get more people involved in marriage? Why not more of everything? Why not more of anything? As long as we keep increasing our momentary happiness. But then, farewell forever to the Garden of Eden. We are excluded forever by our own choice. So here is what faithful Christians believe. On their wedding day, a husband and wife step inside the circle of their one flesh union that God himself creates And here is the sacred experience that they enter into inside that circle, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Not ashamed is a negative way of making a strong affirmation. They were so happy, so safe, Not, the woman was not commodified. The man was not predatory. Both were safe and happy. Marriage as God intended it offers a tenderness that this world cannot possibly provide. So, that's the first thing. How the Bible defines Marriage, one flesh, that is, one man and one woman fully sharing their journey through this mortal life. Let's take the second step then. Number two, how the Bible dignifies marriage and sexuality. Now, here's the interesting thing. As we turn to the New Testament, the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24, and we've said that's the go-to verse for the biblical definition of marriage. The New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 three times to show us the glory of marriage and the glory of human sexuality. Now, the first time the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 is when the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce. They don't ask him about marriage. They ask him about divorce. So the topic that they put out on the table is marriage in the broken world of today. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. Matthew 19. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Here's the quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And look at this. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, here's how that helps. We might wonder, here we are in this year of grace, 2023. We're far advanced in human history. The Garden of Eden was so long ago, so distant, so ancient, What are our marriages worth today? I mean, aren't we stuck with sort of marriage 99th hand, this sort of watered-down 
leftover kind of situation. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, and he does not say, marriage as God first made it, it was great. Well, it lasted, but that's long gone by now. Too bad. Nor does he say, sure, we all know that old verse back there in the Old Testament. We've moved on. That's passe. We're smarter now. No. Jesus sees Genesis 2.24 as directly relevant to us and our imperfect marriages in this world today. He sees God at work, what therefore God has joined together. A husband and wife do not become one by the minister's words at the wedding ceremony. They become one by the act of God himself which Jesus, we accept this on, by faith in what he says. We're following Jesus. He's our best teacher. But Jesus is saying even more than that God joined Adam and Eve together. You can see in the logic of the passage, he is also saying that God is equally present in every troubled marriage today. What therefore God has joined together, let not men separate. Your imperfect marriage is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve back in the garden. Your marriage is not a hand-me-down. Your marriage is a grace directly from God, he thinks your marriage is worth fighting for. And if your heart is broken, so is his. He feels it too. And he wants to help. He's on your side. The second time the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6 is, <laughs> if I had written the Bible, I never would have written this passage. It would not have occurred to me. I wouldn't have had, even if it did, I wouldn't have had the courage to write it. It's a theology of the human body. The Christian gospel is not limited to the salvation of the soul. The Christian gospel includes the salvation of the body, the humblest part of us. And so we read, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know? Look at the way he says that. It's like, we all know this, y'all. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, here's the quote, the two will become one flesh. So, one body is mere physical coupling. One flesh is marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
Jesus paid a price for you, and he's not having any buyer's remorse. Now, we might wonder, why does Christianity make such a big deal about sex? Why the carefully guarded sexual norms and boundaries? The reason is the Holy Spirit dignifies our bodies with nothing less than the glorious presence of God. Your body has become a sacred place. The world will never tell you this. You have to get in your car and drive down to church on Sunday morning to find out the true glory of your body. So verse 15 asks, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your hands and feet, your sexuality, you can see the logic of the passage. Are the bodily members of Christ, the limbs of Christ, the organs of Christ, bringing his presence into the world today? This is a bold statement in the Bible. The living Christ has gotten so involved with us that even our sexuality is joined to him. The gospel inspires our sexual integrity by honoring our bodies. Christianity has high standards for sexual integrity, not because the human body is so disgusting, but precisely because the human body is so valued and dignified and now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has a purpose of grace and glory for your body. And so if our poor bodies could speak to us in a moment of temptation... If they could talk to us, they might say, wait, whoa, 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 you're going to do what? With me? Oh, please don't do that. I mean, I belong to Jesus now, and even if you don't care about me, even if you you have no respect for me, he does. Would you please treat me as a part of Jesus? Because I am. So verse 18 is urgent. Flee from sexual immorality. That is not a Victorian taboo. That is an open door into glory. It is foolish to see how close we can get to the line before we actually, you know, cross over. God calls us to run in the opposite direction. There is nothing petty and small about the moral law of God. He has put his glory into our sexuality. God is not having second thoughts about having given you a body. He's, he's not wishing to take it back. He has entered in and dwells your body. He will glorify your body. And if somebody mistreats your body, they are picking a fight with God Almighty above. You have dignity. The third and final time the New Testament quotes Genesis 2.24 is in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32. Ephesians 5, 28 through 32. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Here's the quote. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, check this out. The context for marriage in Genesis 2 was the creation of Eve from Adam's very body. But look at the thinking in Ephesians 5. We are members of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and get married. See the difference? Now we know the ultimate reason why people fall in love and get married. The reason is not only what God did in uniting Adam and Eve in the garden, but even more what God has done in uniting us with Christ. Marriage is a prophetic sign in this world. Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, God is bearing witness to the gospel of Christ and his bride, whether that couple knows it or not. But we Christians put the gospel on display with full awareness, with joyful purpose through marriage. Now, marriage doesn't look like a profound mystery. Marriage is so common. I've, Janie and I have been married for over 51 years. I've introduced Janie to new friends as my wife many, many times. Not once in 51 years has anyone said, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys are married? You're like you're, you're legit married? Hey, everybody, a married couple. This is, this is a profound mystery. Never happened once. Marriage does not astound us. That's why Paul alerts us to. That's why he says this is a profound mystery. The Bible is alerting us, opening our eyes to the glory we tend not to see. Your marriage points to the ultimate romance. That's how your marriage is a profound mystery, a, a profound insight into what's really going on in this world. So, those are the three quotations of Genesis 2.24 in the New Testament. <laughs> Amazing, right? Whoa, I'm not... Yeah, we, we applaud the Lord. But here, wait, hold your horses. <laughs> okay, a couple of personal takeaways. Then let's like praise God like crazy, all right? One, every marriage here today has problems, but marriage itself is not a problem. According to Genesis 2, God gave marriage to us as a remedy. Let's not attach blame to the gift that doesn't help us. Okay, two, according to Matthew 19, your imperfect marriage is no less of God than the original marriage of Adam and Eve. Receive it with wonder. Three, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the risen Christ has made your very body so dear to him he indwells you. You're clean again. And Jesus is 
present in you through his Holy Spirit, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Four, according to Ephesians 5, people who will never darken the door of a church to hear the gospel will see the gospel in your imperfect but still profound marriage. You're making a statement. You are a statement. You're doing better than you think. Way to go. Let's pray. Our dear and blessed Lord, we thank you for these amazing assurances you've given us here in your word. Seal it to, your, to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.